Amen, indeed. Well, it is wonderful to join with you here at the Branch Church Milledgeville this morning to uh, worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, what an exciting day, isn't it? It's Daytona 500 day. Yeah? All right. We got some race fans in here. All right. Good deal. We, we will be done before 2.30. I can promise you that. All right. So... Um, as we continue in our study and preaching through God's Word and, and the Gospel of John, we reach uh, John chapter 7, 53, verses chapter 8, verse 11. So John 7, chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11 this morning. The sermon title this morning is this, Mercy and Justice Meet. Mercy and Justice Meet. The main point, the main thought I think we will have in this passage is this. In Christ, you are not condemned, but are mercifully justified before God. In Christ, you are not condemned, but are mercifully justified before God. As we reach this passage this morning, you, you may see in, in your Bible that you hold before you this phrase, the earliest manuscript scripts do not include 753 to 811. You see that in, in your Bible? So you may wonder, well, why are we looking at it today? Why is Pastor Ryan preaching that today? Let, let me go through that a little bit here. Most scholars today conclude this passage does not belong in the text of John. Most scholars today, in large part due to the varied man manuscript evidence that we see. Many scholars assert, however, that this passage and the words therein likely originated with John. Many scholars. There are valid manuscripts which support its inclusion. There's also thought that due to the nature of the passage that we will see, and thereby it being more difficult to read, the early and medieval scribe church and scribes would omit, omit the passage, would leave it out because of the sin we read in this passage. They, did, they didn't want to deal with it. Moreover, each of the other I am sayings of Christ is preceded by a narrative providing context for the teaching that we will see next week. So this passage does belong. It does belong. Further, the narrative of chapter 8 takes place in the court of women at the temple. Jesus' encounter, encounter with this woman, caught in adultery, tells how and why he is there. On that note, let's pray once again as we begin to open God's word and hear from him as Kyle prayed. You don't need to hear from me. We all need to hear from God. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we do, that we do get to gather here this morning, that we do get to open your word. Lord, the infallible, authoritative, all-sufficient word that it is from you. So I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you open our minds. Lord, that you teach us, you instruct us, you convict us where needed, you comfort us where needed. But Lord, all the more that at the close of this sermon and at the close of our time together this morning in this worship service, I pray that all the more, all the more, we love you, that all the more we see you, we know you, and that we seek to glorify you. Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. There are horridly disgusting sins 
in this present age, isn't it? Consider examples in the Bible, though. Pharaoh and later King Herod ordering the murder of infant boys to protect their insecure thrones, to protect themselves. Consider abortion today. Worldwide, in 2022, worldwide, in 2022, 5.7 million babies have been killed via abortion. abortion. It's awful, horrible, horrible, disgusting sins. We see evil displayed in this passage today, evil worse than adultery. Adultery will be easy to see in this passage. Most of your Bibles probably see the woman caught in adultery titled before chapter 8. But there's a worse sin than adultery here. There are fewer higher Christian callings today than that of sexual purity, though. Isn't there? We see that over and over again in the Word of God. Adultery is more of a sin of weakness, though, than malice. The sin that dominates this passage is born of pure hatred. Hatred. A woman, a person made in God's image, would be destroyed for the sake of bringing down Jesus Christ. Why? Because his message of repentance and lordship was extremely inconvenient to the agenda of those who sought to kill him, to murder him. Let's look now. 753 through chapter 8, verse 11. Join me as we read. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. First, we see the evil conspiracy formed by the Pharisees. In chapter 7, the religious leaders failed to arrest Jesus. They failed to bring him down at that point. Now, as we begin chapter 8, these same leaders devise an evil yet somewhat genius, according to them, plan. First, the evil portion of this plan. What is known about the ancient Jewish legal procedures makes it clear this plan was not a simple case of opportunity, rather a, cons a conspiracy to set up Christ, to bring him down, to kill him, to murder him. Adultery was a crime punishable by death. But according to the law of Moses, the couple must have been caught in the sexual act of committing the adultery. Leviticus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 22, we see that. 
They had to be caught in the actual act because details had to be shared about the act if they were going to be the witnesses. The witnesses, plural, at least two, according to the Old Testament, had to be witnesses, actual witnesses. Consider, they only brought the woman forward for judgment and death, not redemption. There is no grace, no mercy shown by the Pharisees, only judgment, only judgment, only to use her to get to Christ. In the least, in the least, they allowed the, the man in this case to flee. In the least, they allowed to, the man to flee. At worst, the man was part of the conspiracy and seduced the woman for the intent purpose of judging and murdering her. Do you see the callous attitude about sin and further the contempt for human life displayed here? Women have endured similar such abuse by far too many men in church leadership today. Far too many men abuse their power and thereby abuse women in the flock that they shepherd, that they claim to shepherd, that they claim to care for, that they claim to love, yet using their power, abusing them. It has no place. It gets worse when we consider these religious leaders' attitude toward God's word. In verses 4 and 5, we see it. They sought to use the law of Moses as nothing more than a weapon. They sent to use the word of God, the law of Moses, given to them to adore God, to worship God, to glorify God in their lives. Instead, they sought to use it, not for glory to God, not for knowledge of God, but as a weapon to weaponize the word of God in an attempt to kill this woman. Furthermore, if these witnesses were in such a place to witness this act of adultery, why wouldn't they seek to stop it? If their care was really for the individual or really individuals in this sin, why wouldn't they seek to step in and stop it? Instead, they exploited the sin. When you see your brother or sister in Christ in sin, do you just let it go or do you seek to stop it? Stop it, yes, with grace, with mercy, with love, but stop it nonetheless. Or do you let them continue to go to the pig trough of sin and keep eating and feasting once again over and over and over I urge you, I implore you, step in and stop it. Show true love to your brother and sister in Christ and stop them from that life of sin with love, in grace, in mercy, in Christ. Jesus has much to say concerning such individuals as these Pharisees, in particular what we read in John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That is a strong statement by John, is it not? 
telling these Pharisees and others who would be like them, who would act like them, that your actions prove that God is not your father, but rather the devil. The Pharisees here carry out a devilish motive. No concern for God, no concern for righteousness, only for their power, for their control. This type of self-righteousness, this type of self-idolatrous malice and worship is always what Satan inspires. Always. We see it from the very beginning, the very first sin of mankind in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, what does Satan do? He tempts Eve and Adam, not just Eve, both of them with self-righteous self-control. You can be as smart as God. You can be as God. You can be God. It's the same attitude that can rise up in us if we do not stand ready, ready to battle and kill the sin that would drive us to this disgusting act of depravity. Now the genius part of this plan, or so they thought, this conspiracy act by these Pharisees had some genius to it, at least, again, they so thought. Their intention was to discredit Christ. Consider the options presented to Jesus in this moment. In this moment, where Jesus stood with this woman, caught in adultery, brought by two witnesses at least, and more followed the Pharisees to this temple court. Consider these options. Christ could urge forgiveness. He could urge forgiveness to the woman standing beside him and all those who gathered in the court. This would be consistent with his teachings on grace, but possibly at the expense of setting aside the law, possibly at the expense of setting aside justice according to God. God is holy. He burns against sin. There's no greater symbol to see God's burn, his wrath towards sin, than when we look upon the cross of Christ. If Jesus or anyone were to push aside the demands of his justice, then he would not be seen as a credible divine messenger. You see, the Pharisees, you can almost see the thought bubbles popping above their heads. We got you. You're teaching on grace, yet now we bring before you one who, according to the law of Moses, must not just be judged, but must be killed. What are you going to do, Jesus? Jesus could take his stand with Moses, calling for the woman's condemnation. But this would seemingly compromise his future teachings on the grace of God. John Calvin puts it this way. He said their intention was to constrain Christ to depart from his office of preaching grace that he might appear to be fickle and unsteady. Imagine Jesus saying this. Imagine this. Christ did not say this, okay? But imagine he would have said this in this moment. This woman is guilty and must be punished. Let's gather stones and put her to death. Imagine Christ saying that. 
Because again, he did not say that. What sinner would ever, would ever come to him? What sinner would ever fall to his feet, weeping upon his feet for forgiveness of their sins? None would. None would approach such a savior. None. So, A.W. Pink, theologian and author, puts it very well. He said, the problem presented to Christ by his enemies was no mere local one. So far as human reason can perceive it was the profoundest moral problem which ever could or can confront God himself. That problem was how justice and mercy could be harmonized. How can mercy be exercised when the sword of justice bars her way? How can grace flow forth except by sliding holiness. We come now to the presence of Jesus. This isn't just any man standing in their midst. This isn't just a teacher, just a prophet standing among them. This is God in human flesh. God in human flesh has adorned their presence on this day. Only God can solve such a problem. And what we see is it is no problem at all for Jesus. Rather, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for him to display his sovereign mastery over every single circumstance. In the presence of Christ, the gospel becomes clear and is clearly seen. The law of God is necessary. We especially as Reformed Baptists, as Reformed believers, of the word of God and in Christ, we, we understand that. The law is necessary, absolutely necessary. Through it, we see and know the true nature of fallen mankind. This then reveals to us the desperate need for redemption, for justification before the holy God. The gospel of Christ transcends culture as well as sins committed that are this, and even worsely, abhorrent. For the Christ follower to properly understand grace, we must, absolutely must, have a thorough understanding of sin. We cannot properly and completely understand the grace of God without also understanding the sin nature of mankind, the sin nature that each of us house in this human flesh. How should we see the sin in our life? Paul, in Colossians 3, verse 5, tells us this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Christians can and, in fact, do sin. Don't we? We sin. I sin. Pastor Bailey sins. Pastor Kyle sins. We all sin. We not only can, we do. But we must not identify in the sin, nor seek to glorify the sin. Instead, as Paul says, we must, what is he saying, Colossians 3, 5, put to death the sin that entangles us. And in so doing, seek to glorify Christ. But, but what happens? Turn with me quickly 
if you want, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What happens to those who identify in their sin, who wear the label of their sin? What happens to them? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll read verses 9 and 10, where Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous rather, will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he starts verse 9 with that. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he goes on. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who will identify in their sin... Consider our society today in 2022. There's nothing more popular than to identify in your sin. 1 Corinthians 6 is very clear what will happen to them apart from the saving grace of Almighty God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will instead inherit the wrath of God. It is impossible to know for certain what Christ was riding on the ground there as he went down on one knee to write with his finger in the sand before the woman and those Pharisees. Some say he was listing the sins of the accusers. Others that he was writing out what he would say in his response. As Roman judges did, some say he was writing out the law's condemnation of these false witnesses. In any account, whatever Christ wrote, it meant something to those men who were standing there to judge, condemn, and murder this woman. What we do know, the personal presence of Jesus deterred these men from their terrible and depraved act. Is not the presence of Christ in your life the most wonderful, wondrous, magnanimous, great, wonderful thing in your life. Consider, consider the peace that you have in your life, not just from within, but from without. Consider the peace you have in your life that would not be there apart from Christ. Consider the protection that is placed around you because of Christ. Consider the care, the nurture, the compassion, the love that is in you and that surrounds you as one who is in Christ. That is what Christ is doing for this woman physically, practically in this moment right here. He's caring for her compassionately, loving her compassionately in and through the grace and the mercy of God. The key turning point was what Jesus said in verse 7. With these words, Jesus utterly disarmed the conspiracy trap and sent the accusers fleeing. They all left, one by one, starting with the oldest and then to the youngest. Why? Because the youngest were not going to leave until their teachers left. In my opinion, this is just my opinion, I believe Christ was writing out their sin in that sand. Their sin 
and beginning with the teachers, the pharisaical teachers, who stood there in amazement. How could this man know that I did that? How could this man know that I thought that? How could this man know that I desire that? These words that Jesus wrote in the sand, Jesus utterly disarmed the conspiracy trap and indeed, again, sent them all fleeing. Jesus did not set aside the law. He did not set aside justice. He did not set aside holiness. He did not set aside the glory of God. At the same time, he protected this woman from harm. This response by Christ does not mean there can never be justice on a human level. Let me say that again. The response by Jesus that we see here does not mean there can never be justice on a human level. It's part of God's common grace, after all. It seems to me that we see it less and less and less in our present age But praise be to God, there is still justice by his common grace on a human level. There are actually still judges who will abide by the law. There are actually still followers of Christ who will seek to live according to the law in the grace of God to glorify Christ. This does not mean that no jury can never condemn a criminal because jurors are not perfectly sinless, nor is Jesus forbidding Christians from correcting the sins of others. Jesus has a central objective, though, as it concerns this woman. His central objective was purely, simply, redemption of a sinner. We come to the moment when mercy and justice meet. That moment that we have all experienced if we be in Christ, that moment where mercy, that we do not receive the eternal damnation that we all, that we all have earned, but we receive mercy and justice. There is a wide chasm between the way the Pharisees treated the woman and how Jesus treated her. There is a horrible sin, a blasphemous sin, one these Pharisees partook in, using the word of God not to proclaim grace for salvation, instead to use the word to destroy lives in the effort to pursue their own agendas. Consider the global church. The global church today and in particular, the church in China. The church in China has known and knows today and will continue to know so many persecutions. Yet, what does it do? It grows. It continues to grow. The fire of the gospel continues to flow through that church that many are saved, ongoing by the grace of God. But that is in spite of the efforts of the modern-day Pharisee, of the modern-day Chinese Communist Party. 
they use the word of God as a weapon to meet their means of destruction. Listen to the utterly blasphemous rendering by the CCP of John chapter 8, verses 7 through 11. Let me clearly state before I read this. This is not the word of God. This is exactly what these Pharisees that we read about in this passage in John today sought to do in their effort to destroy this woman and destroy others. It happens today. Here's their rendering of John 8, verses 7 through 11. And here's what happens. Again, there is no new sin under the sun. It's the same sin. When you hear me read this, pay close attention. It's the same sin that Satan used with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He quoted the word of God in part. But then he didn't. Then he added his rendering of the word of God. Their rendering. John chapter 8, verses 7 through 11, according to the CCP. Jesus once said to the angry crowd who was trying to stone a woman who had sinned, he who is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. It sounds pretty correct, right? They go on. When his words came to their ears, they stopped moving forward. When everyone went out, Jesus stoned the woman himself and said, I am also a sinner. Utter, complete blasphemy. Yet, yet, this is not some story we read in the Bible that happened long ago. This is the truth we read in the Bible that happens today. Unfortunately, we see the word of God being used for personal gain in our own country, in the good old U.S. of A. in 2022. Even in our own Southern Baptist Convention, in the good old SBC, leaders, pastors capitulating to societal and cultural norms concerning homosexuality, social justice, LGBTQ issues, and many, many more. Using the word of God as a weapon. As a weapon to... You're wrong. Wrong. We see it in this passage today. Jesus does not set aside justice. He does not dismiss judgment of this woman. Listen, truth, truth, the truth of the word of God matters above all. Above all. Many of you, maybe even most of you, who are college students here at Georgia College, you will move on. You will go on to wherever that job calls you to go as God calls you to go. You will go to various cities across our country Let me urge you, find a place of worship that preaches, teaches, teaches, sings, and prays 
truth. The truth of the word of God. I don't care if their music brings you emotional happiness. Do they preach truth? Do they sing truth? Do they pray truth? Oh, it may be hard to find community as you have it here. I see some faces that used to be in this body. And I would gather, they may tell you, if you were to ask them, they haven't been able to replicate the community they had here at the Branch Church Milledgeville. That takes work. But it shouldn't take work for you to find truth, for you to pull truth from the pulpit that you listen to and you're preached and taught from every Lord's Day. That should be given to you by the grace of God. Find that. Then you will know where you belong. For those of you that are here and will remain here in this body, I would encourage you, I would urge you, praise God that you belong to a church, to a local body where you do hear the truth of God's word, not only preached, but also sung and also prayed, where ordinances are partaken each Lord's Day, where the ordinance of baptism still stands as those who repent and believe. Truth matters above all. Jesus here does not set aside the law, does not withhold grace, though at the same time, and does not diminish nor remove the gospel truth. When we approach the center, we must do as Jesus did. We must speak the truth concerning homosexuality, abortion, lawlessness, with our agenda being not to prop self up, not to bring power, esteem, or glory to self, but with our agenda being simply this, redemption of the sinner. Jesus showed compassion for her desperate condition. Jesus extended forgiveness to this sinful woman. There he was in the temple court, suddenly quiet. Verse 10. Let me read verse 10 again from John chapter 8. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are they? Look, look around you. Where are they who would seek to condemn you? Where are they who would seek to pick up stones, pick up rocks, throw them at you, hurl them into your body, into your head, and murder you? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Standing before her, Christ proclaims this to her. In Christ and in him alone is their forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. No one, Lord. No one stands before me but you. But you. No one, Lord. As a follower of Christ, we have freedom. We have freedom from something. We have freedom from eternal, just, justified, eternal, the eternal penalty of our sin. 
We have freedom not to use for sinful pleasure, but to freely, as a bondservant to Christ Jesus, to obey his commands. A lifestyle of sin does not equate a true saving faith. You will sin. I will sin. We will sin as followers of Jesus Christ. But hear me, a lifestyle of sin. A life that can be marked not by the Christ that lives within you, the spirit of Christ that seals you in your salvation, but rather a life that can be marked. Someone points to you and says, there's the drunkard. There's the idolater. That is not saving faith. That is not a life that has been changed by the grace of God. If you be a new creation, having been reborn spiritually, you will have new desires which will lead you to seek righteousness, holiness in your sanctification walk in Christ Jesus. Psalm 85, verses 8 through 10, we read this. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. It was at Calvary that Psalm 85 verse 10 where righteousness and peace kiss each other can be spoken and it is because of Calvary that through his sacrifice Jesus can exclaim to this woman and to all believers and to us today as he exclaimed to her at the close of verse 11, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Hear what Paul says in verse 11. And such were some of you. And such were some of you who identified as an idolater, who identified as a drunkard, as a reviler, as a swindler, as a thief, practicing homosexuality. You were identified in that. But by the grace of God, Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says it so clearly in Romans 8, verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1, Paul says so clearly concerning the lack of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is after Paul has warred within his own self, with his flesh proclaiming that I do the things that I hate to do, I don't do the things that I want to do. There's this war that we see within Paul fighting and warring with his sinful flesh to do the will of God and not do the things that are sinful. 
he exclaims, beginning in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is after he exclaims in chapter 7, verse 24, wretched man that I am. He proclaims because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation. If all the armies of hell, if Satan himself were to come against even one of the elect of God, you may be here this morning. You may feel as though you're losing grip of your faith. You may feel as though you're barely hanging on. Whatever's gone on in your life, whatever struggle, whatever pain, whatever hardship, whatever sin has gripped hold of you, you may feel as though you're hanging off the side of the cliff, hanging on, barely. My dear brother or sister in Christ, your faith will never be defeated. Though you may have failed, you may be warring with that specific sin that has entangled you. Know this, you may have failed, but your faith held by Christ will never fall. Your faith, born of the grace of God, faith that is found in Christ, is forevermore bound in Christ Jesus. He will hold you fast. You are, you will be, and for all eternity, you are victorious in, by, and through Christ. Christ alone. Now, as Jesus said to this woman, as he closed verse 11, now, now go and sin no more. Pursue and live a life to the glory of Christ that is not marked or identified by sin. Romans chapter 8, the first part of verse 9, we hear Paul say, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit dwells in you. According to the power at work in you, live and proclaim Christ and his gospel until he returns or calls you home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a passage that many would rather not look at because of their own self-righteousness. But I thank you for the opportunity this morning to learn to know, renewed or know for the first time, your mercy. Your mercy, your justice, your grace. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have saved us, that you have given us life in Jesus Christ, new life, spiritually reborn, to now go out, to now go out and sin no more, to now go out and seek redemption for the sinner. Lord, lead us, lead us. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.